Father, thank you for the chance to think about the Spirit-filled life and what it means for Him to empower us day by day and moment by moment. Pray for our time this evening that you would supersede it in every respect, that you would teach us how to walk in the Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if this is your first week here, we're in a series out of our basic discipleship series on the Spirit-filled life. This is actually a 38-page handout, so you're getting the third part. If you missed the first two, you can print them out online. So tonight we want to begin with Roman numeral number four, why are so many Christians baby Christians? All right, follow along. Nothing is more exciting than seeing someone come to faith in Christ, being able to introduce someone to God's forgiveness and to help them find the abundant life that Christ promises is a thrilling privilege that God wants every Christian to know. But just as important it is to help new believers to growth in their faith after the second birth, God commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the physical realm, newborn babies are not left alone and expected to grow on their own, but they are brought into a family who loves them, feeds them, trains them, and helps them to grow. Sadly, many people are attempting to grow spiritually when they have never had the new birth and they wonder why their lives have never changed. Jesus taught we must be born again before we can see or understand and be changed by the spiritual truths of God's Word. Without the second birth, it is impossible to grow spiritually. However, once we have had the new birth, God's design in the spiritual realm is parallel to God's design in the physical realm. The second birth makes us members of a new family, and that family of brothers and sisters is to be found in the local church. It is God's local church where we care for one another, Shepherds, also called pastors, are to feed the flock of God. The Bible places a premium on spiritual growth in passages like 1 Peter 2.2, where we're told, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Just as newborn babies who cannot obtain pure milk will not develop into healthy adults, even so new Christians need the basic nutrients of spiritual growth before they can get advanced in their understanding of deeper spiritual truths. In our day of growing biblical illiteracy, most new Christians know very little and are unfamiliar with the basics of Christian growth. So in this section, we will examine why it is that some Christians never mature and languish in spiritual infancy. So we've discovered so far, I needed a pen, uh, we've discovered that there are three kinds of people in the world. There's a natural man, thank you, who basically does what comes natural. He's physically alive, he's spiritually dead. Um, there's the spiritual man who has a grown-up and a growing relationship with Christ, and that's God's intention for us to be spiritual men. And then there's the carnal man. The natural man does what comes natural. The spiritual man does what comes supernatural. But the carnal man does what comes unnatural. It is unnatural to stay a carnal Christian. And if Dr. Billy Graham was right, he said 90 to 95% of those who have met the Lord have never grown out of spiritual infancy. And so, of course, you can't help people to grow who haven't been born. And sometimes we're trying to get people to grow spiritually because we want to think they're Christians when they've never met Christ in a life-changing way. So with each of these summary paragraphs, if you're new to this course, I'm trying to give you a flavor of where we're headed. So point A, some are baby Christians because of a lack of spiritual food. When people come to faith in Christ, they are to come into a local church where a spiritual shepherd known as a pastor feeds them God's word. While elders today are not apostles, all apostles are elders or pastors, 1 Peter 5.1. Peter calls himself a fellow elder, and yet he's an apostle, yet he was in a pastor, which is why the apostle Paul modeled to the Ephesian elder a ministry of faithfully teaching the Bible. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And so if a pastor gives his congregation only what he perceives people want to, 
to hear, then he will never move God's people past milk into solid food. So there's two usages of milk in the New Testament. One that speaks of the purity of God's word. We just read that. He's not speaking of padlum there, but like newborn babes long for the pure milk of God's word. And then the second realm of milk in the New Testament is simple baby truth, so to speak. And so four, if a student will not graduate past addition into multiplication and then into long division and geometry and algebra and into trigonometry and then into calculus, then he will never progress very far mathematically. Well, he may not want to go to the next level because he thinks it's too hard, right? Those of you home educate, you hear your kids complain, say, it's too hard. Well, sadly, a pastor can be guilty of not preaching the whole counsel of God because he reasons it's too hard or too convicting to hear. And so then he leaves new believers or maybe his entire congregation as babes in Christ. Sad state of the church in America. A pastor is commanded to shepherd the flock among you. That's 1 Peter 5.2, and that involves providing spiritual food to both new and maturing believers, or otherwise he will have a congregation of malnourished sheep. So that's the challenge of every good pastor. He has to feed those who have not only been fed for years and applied that truth such that they are spiritual men, but he has to take care of the newest believer in every message. His message has to feed the youngest believer and the oldest believer and everything in between. With that said, God can still help a believer to grow using other teachers and pastor teachers in the body of Christ to help them mature. So there's two gifts mentioned here, the gift of teaching, and then a second gift, it's pastor slash teacher in Ephesians. It's a single gift that's being described. But God's ideal is for a pastor to feed his people the Word of God so that the sheep will be healthy and healthy sheep will always reproduce. A mark that we're growing is that we care about other people. We're involved in either helping new believers to grow in their faith, or we're engaged in reaching those who have never found the Savior. This is why the Lord Jesus asked Peter three times in some form, do you love me? In response, three times, Jesus commanded him to feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and to feed my sheep. However, if a pastor is ill-prepared or distracted by other ministry activities, i.e., sadly, the average pastor today that I meet, then all he will be able to offer his flock is pre-digested food, namely milk, and he is not showing his sincere love for Jesus Christ. A pastor is to feed Christ's sheep as Christ told Peter, so that God's people might glorify Christ by a maturing and a reproducing life. So again, Peter is an apostle, but he's also an elder, and the apostles modeled in Acts 6, we will devote our times to the ministry of the Word and to preaching. God's plan is to have a pastor who devotes himself to prayer into the ministry of the Word so that God's people will leave the assembly with a nutritious scriptural meal under his belt. Scriptural, biblical, by the way, is lowercase. Bible, scripture is uppercase. But it's so misused, I suppose the rule will change before long. Uh, 14, many studying this lesson should do everything in their power to find the strongest church they can. And if such a church is not available, and sadly that's more and more the case in these days of apostasy, then find the best church that has the gospel and take vitamin supplements. God, God foresaw where the church would be at the end of the age. The men would not be known for teaching sound doctrine. And that's why he has provided this point in the age of the church, other avenues for those who are serious, they can get the help they need, the vitamin supplements as I call them. A key factor for spiritual growth, as we will cover in depth in section seven, that's the next session of these 21 sessions in the discovery class or what we're calling online biblical discipleship, is to be filled with the spirit and to be filled with the truth of scripture. So those two go hand in hand. And so God willing, in 2023 and maybe February, we will spend some weeks on what it means to be filled with the Word of God. All right, so that's the first point. Some people just don't grow because of a lack of spiritual food. 
and they have to weigh that before the Lord. You know, God might say to some, but you had these other things that you could have accessed, but you didn't. And some don't have those other things, and God, you know, weighs all that at the judgment of the just. Point B, some are baby Christians because they have not had enough time to grow. They've not had enough time to grow. Two key components for spiritual growth and maturity are both being filled with the Spirit over the course of time, all right? A person may be a brand new believer and filled with the Spirit as much as they know how to be filled with the Spirit, but enough time has not transpired for them to be spiritual or mature. And we saw that the term spiritual man was not just in reference to a spirit-filled Christian, though indeed he is, but a mature believer. You can be spirit-filled and still be a babe in Christ, as we'll see here in a moment. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he planted the church in Corinth, dealt with the new Christians living there as babes in Christ. He dealt with them as babes in Christ. By the way, this information we're covering tonight is critical. You need to know it inside and out. You have children in your home, grandchildren, God is allowing you to disciple. These are the rock bottom critical truths of the Bible that they need to know. If I ask you what are the four responsibilities for a believer in relationship to the Spirit of God, you should be able to name them right off. And if you don't, I hope by the time this session and the next is done, it will be very much solidified in your mind. It's one thing to know truth in a way that it's helping you. It's another thing to be able to communicate it to someone else, whole different level. So time is a critical component of spiritual growth, though time is certainly not a guarantee of spiritual growth. We studied earlier in this lesson from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 3. That should say 1 Corinthians um, 3, 1 to 3, typo. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants or babes in Christ, depending on which edition of the NASB you have. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly, or you could render it carnal. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? The King James puts carnal. And you are not walking, and are you not walking like mere men? That is like natural men, and the implication is, yes, you are. So having planted the Corinthian church, which Acts 18 unfolds for us, Paul dealt with the Corinthians not as spiritual men, mature believers, for they were new Christians, being infants or babes in Christ, able to absorb only simple truth. So you start a baby that has just been carried into your home from the hospital or wherever you had it, not on steak, but on milk. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. When in 55 AD, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. By the way, that's a firm date, and Luke is a premier historian, and he dropped chronological clues all the way through the book of Acts. And if you've studied my series on Acts, I highlight many of those. Um, It's 55 AD when he writes this letter to those who'd received Christ on his second missionary journey that took place in 51 AD. Some four years had transpired since many of them had been saved. Of course, there is nothing wrong with being a baby Christian, but there is something wrong with staying a baby Christian. Therein lies the problem. While there is a legitimate babyhood, enough time had gone by where they should have grown up such that Paul would have been able to have changed their spiritual diet from that of milk to solid food. But he says, indeed, even now there's a change of tense. I gave you milk, not solid food. Indeed, even now, meaning four years later, you're still not able. You're a bunch of babies, he's telling the Corinthians, when you shouldn't be. Their problem was not one of conversion, but of growth, because from the Spirit's perspective, who inspires Paul to write this letter, enough time had passed where they should have been ready for solid food. There are some baby or carnal Christians who are stuck in spiritual infancy because they have been stunted in the growth process, and we're going to look at that further. 
but some just haven't had enough time to grow. But today, the average Christian who is babyfied and stunted in his spiritual growth is not a normal Christian because the normal Christian is to be filled with the Spirit and growing up in Christ. So sadly, if Dr. Graham is right, the average Christian has stayed babyfied, a stunted Christian. And that's the norm, but it's abnormal. Sadly, if an average Christian ever becomes normal in terms of biblical definition of normal, he will seem to many to be abnormal, <laughs> understood by no man. That's his point in 1 Corinthians 2.15. You're spiritual, but you're not understood by other folks. Why do you think? Why do you act? Why are you so passionate about Christ the way you are? It doesn't compute with a babyfied Christian. So the book of Hebrews emphasizes this same truth in Hebrews chapter 5. You know this text, I hope, for though by this time, there's time again, you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you. The ABCs, the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the writer of the Hebrews tells us that by this time you ought to be teachers, where he uses a second person plural pronoun meaning all of you, you meaning you all. Um, that's not carried out in the new English, but in 17th century English, there's a singular you and there's a plural you that the King James picks up. And it's beautiful in that respect. We've lost that in modern English, but it's you, you all ought to be teachers, uh, meaning the entire church. Their excuse was not time, because enough time had transpired such that they should have grown enough to the point where they could be teachers in order to help others in basic Christian doctrine. So it was not a problem of time with these folks. There were other issues that were at hand. You see, as you mature, you learn to answer basic questions that both non-Christians and new Christians have such that you are able to relate the Bible to the everyday occurrences of life. He had expected these born-again Hebrews to have grown up by now, such that they could be considered teachers of God's Word. That's what he had expected. Y'all ought to be teachers, he said. Now, understand, he was not expecting them to be serving in the office of teaching, which God warns us to enter that position with caution, right? You know that, James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers. There he's speaking of the office that I'm serving in tonight. Why? Because you incur a stricter judgment. You better know you're called because at the judgment of the just, your judgment will be stricter. Nor was he expecting them to teach someone having the spiritual gift of teaching, something they had no control over, right? In the list of spiritual gifts, four major passages, one being 1 Corinthians 12, one of those gifts is the gift of teaching. All in our teachers, are they? Rhetorical question, absolutely not. You can't determine what spiritual gift you get. The Spirit of God determines as He wills, that verse says. So if He gave you the gift of teaching, that was by His will. So He's not even expecting someone to teach like someone with the gift of teaching, much less the office of teaching. Yet, they should have been showing a level of maturity, much like an elder, who might not have the gifts of teaching or of pastor teacher, and yet is still able to teach with sound doctrine. Those two texts that I gave you there give the qualifications for an elder, and one of them is that he's sound in doctrine or able to teach. In other words, he has to have reached a level of maturity. Now, some elders, the Bible said, are given to the teaching ministry. They earn their living, and so he speaks about those who are given double honor in that they dedicate themselves to a preaching ministry. So you don't necessarily have to be gifted to be an elder to preach or to teach, but you have to have matured enough where you are sound in doctrine. To teach others is a common responsibility we all share, just as all believers are called to serve, to show mercy, to share the gospel, even if they don't have that particular gift. 
which is a powerful argument for the non-signed gifts that are still given today. Because with all of those non-signed gifts, unlike the four signed gifts in the New Testament, there's a common responsibility that every born-again Christian has. Teaching others is a mark of growth, and you will never start growing more than when you start giving out as is essential for maturity. And it can happen at all kinds of levels. It might be in your family where you're teaching your kids the scriptures at night or at the table in the morning or, or you've taken on an Awana class. One of the greatest things my wife challenged me to do is when I was in seminary to teach what they called mission friends in this church we were going to, kind of like our Awana program, and it was five and six years old. And to be able to take great theological truths and to put them where a five or a six-year-old can grasp it, wow, that was a challenge. And they asked some of the best questions, and some of these kids had already met the Lord at that age. But, you know, it's a great opportunity when you begin to give out. You grow more, you find out, sometimes in the person you're actually teaching. Some Christians lack the zeal in life and growth that God intends them to have because they are always taking in but never giving out. When we become teachers in terms of responsibility, Hebrews 5, we really start growing for teaching others are both a byproduct of growth and a means to growth. So if you're thinking, oh, where can I serve? Randy and Evelyn are always looking for people. Even if you want to come in as an assistant to teach children, wow, what an opportunity uh, to build into the lives. Or Awana, there's only 25 a year. What an opportunity. So there's nothing wrong with initially being a baby Christian, for we are all for all are at the moment we are saved, but there is something wrong with staying a baby Christian when we've had enough time to grow. So that brings us to point C. Some, again, are baby Christians because they're not fed by the pulpit. Some are baby Christians. They haven't had enough time. And some are baby Christians because they have forgotten basic truth. 2 Peter 1, great chapter, the Apostle Peter describes a spirit-filled believer by giving a similar list to what Paul gives in Galatians 5, 21. You know that passage, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and he gives those nine qualities. Well, Peter does something very similar in, in describing the Spirit's fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. But then, when he comes down to verse 9 of chapter 1, he tells us why some are not displaying this fruit. Listen to this. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So while the unsaved person is in the dark because Satan has blinded his mind, right? The devil has blinded the minds. The God of this world, small g, has blinded the mind of unbelievers. You know that text, right? Such that he is headed for a cliff, getting ready to fall off into an eternal liquid lake of fire and does not even see it. We might even describe the non-Christian as having had his spiritual optic nerve caught so that he cannot see truth. That's his problem. You can't condemn him for not seeing and embracing something that you can't embrace typically until you're born again. In the same way, the saved person who has had his eyes open such that he can see the kingdom of God. You must be born again, not just to enter the kingdom of God, but to see, and the word there means to grasp, to understand, to see the kingdom of God. Still, sometimes through forgetfulness has become spiritually myopic or short-sighted. That's what Peter just said. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they leave you not unfruitful for entrance into the kingdom. But if you don't have these things, Something's wrong. You have forgotten your former purification from sins. Some believers are like the Christians in the church of Laodicea who are proud and that they're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing because they measure success improperly. A lot of people measure spirituality in ways that the New Testament does not. The Laodiceans did not even realize that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked as Jesus described them. Just as many spiritually stunted believers think everything is good when in reality, when it really is not. The apostle Peter informs us that any one of us can become spiritually nearsighted if we reach a point where we have forgotten the great price God paid 
for the purification of our former sins. Some believers start well, but before too long, they develop this kind of sick spiritual eyesight by forgetting how God provided salvation for us and redeeming us up out from the pit of eternal judgment. Some start well, but do not progress out of spiritual infancy. And that they get so bogged down in this world, they forget the price of their forgiveness such that they become blind or short-sighted, to use Peter's words. One of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's table, and when we have it, you should come. We have it once a month. And unless something providentially is keeping you away, you should come. That's a command of Scripture when the Lord's table is being offered. So we'll have it in two weeks from tonight. And I know there's a kid's musical, but you should come whether you have kids or not because we're, we're, we're offering it on the Wednesday night and the off month for those who sometimes have to work every other Sunday, especially. That's why we alternate between Sunday and Wednesday, if you've ever wondered that. So um, one of the reasons is a reminder that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been purged and forgiven so that we never are never to forget what he has done so that we never forget what he has done. We all need to understand that spiritual growth is analogous to physical growth and that neither is instantaneous, but is a process over time. Therein lies the heresy and the false doctrine of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. If you have this experience, you'll be catapulted into spiritual growth. Nothing could be further from the truth and contrary to what the New Testament reveals. It takes time. And yet, some believers have remained infants in Christ because they have forgotten the price paid for them to daily die to self, or they are not being fed spiritually, or simply enough time has not yet gone by. For this reason, on the one hand, it is possible to be filled with the Spirit daily, but because enough time has not transpired, one cannot say that he has a grown-up, growing relationship with Jesus. And we saw earlier in this section that it's the spiritual man that it's described as not having arrived, but he has a grown-up, but a growing relationship, forgetting what is in the past, pressing on to the great things God has in front of us. On the other hand, some believers have logged decades in the faith as truly converted, but have remained babes in Christ because over the decades, they have not consistently been filled with the Spirit. So while they are indwelt by the Spirit, they're not filled with the Spirit. And when decades go by like that, you're stunted. You remain a babe in Christ. And so uh, walking in the Spirit plus time equals spiritual maturity plus continued growth. So you can walk in the Spirit on the left side of the equation, but it's been such a short period of time, you're still a baby Christian. And in the truest sense, still somewhat fleshly or carnal. So it may sound somewhat contradictory to call a carnal Christian spirit-filled, but technically he can be. You follow because he's spirit-filled, but he's baby. On the other hand, you can have time on the left side of the equation, but not consistently walking in the spirit, and you're still a baby Christian. But when we are filled with the spirit, walking in the spirit over the course of time, then spiritual maturity takes place plus continued growth. You keep growing. If you are a new Christian, just keep learning to walk with God and let him grow you up strong in the faith. But if you are a stunted believer, you need to repent of your carnality and allow the spirit to fill you. And if you are a spirit-filled spiritual man, in other words, mature, keep growing because it does not matter where you are, for there is a lot more growth to come, right? I hope, I hope that's true. I hope you see that. I hope that's true of you. If you do not love Christ more this year than you did last year, then you are backsliding with God when God wants you to be growing. You're backsliding when God wants you to be growing. You don't stand still in the Christian life. You're either green and growing or you're brown and dying. There's there's no stationary Christians, not according to the New Testament. So thus far, we have learned that if we're not a natural man, then we are either a carnal man or a spiritual man. And God wants us to be spiritual in that we have a grown-up and growing relationship with Jesus. If you're studying this lesson and you know that you are lost 
or what God calls the natural man. And some people sometimes when I've given this lesson or even a presentation on the spirit-filled life and they see all the characteristics of a natural man, they begin to realize maybe I've never been born again. And here I am trying to grow and mature and to change, but I've never been made a new creation. And sometimes I see parents just wanting to believe their kids are saved when they show the marks of lostness and they're trying to push them to grow, but you can't grow someone who's not born again. If you're studying this lesson, you know that you're lost or what the scripture calls a natural man, then just know growth is impossible. And the wisest decision you should make today is to receive Christ as Lord. If you're studying this lesson, you know that you're a carnal believer then just know that your growth is impaired and needs to be corrected. And you will want to pay very close attention to this entire lesson. And if you missed the prior weeks, go back and, and review those. And if you are studying this lesson and you know that you have matured enough such that God would call you a spiritual man, then just know with the Spirit's filling, your growth is empowered for more growth. So Paul can say, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You ought to be able to say humbly that while you are not what you ought to be, nor what you are going to be, you still want to grow more. And if you've lost that in your heart, there's something wrong, but it can be corrected. Okay, so let's talk Roman number five. What are the conditions for being filled with the Spirit? Again, kind of a summary paragraph of where we're going if you end up teaching this material. While every true believer is indwelt or baptized by the Spirit, not every Christian is filled with the Spirit. And we went through in the last session the distinction between those two truths in the New Testament. For this reason, after Pentecost, we're never commanded to be baptized with the Spirit because it is assumed that we already have Him. Right? If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not one of His. Or 1 Corinthians 12, we've all been baptized by one Spirit. Or Ephesians 1, when you hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you're sealed with the Spirit. You're given the Spirit at the moment of conversion on this side of Pentecost. However, while all Christians are indwelt by the Spirit, not all Christians are filled with the Spirit. For this reason, God, through the Apostle Paul, commands us in Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The comparison is clear in that both the drunk person and the spirit-filled Christian are controlled people. One is controlled by the alcohol he has consumed, just as the believer is to be controlled by the spirit he has received. Just as a person under the influence of alcohol acts in a way unnatural to God's design, even so someone abiding in Christ or filled by the spirit is living in a way that is unnatural to his inherited sinful nature. So in this section, we will examine from our side what the necessary conditions are so that the Spirit of God is willing to fill us. He wants to fill you, but we have to meet those necessary conditions. In addition, we will examine the necessary conditions that help us to live moment by moment to walk in the Spirit. So we're going to look at two sides. First, the conditions that prepare us to be filled with the Spirit. There are two primary conditions that we must meet if we are to be spiritually prepared so that the Spirit who lives in us can fill us. First, we're commanded in Ephesians 4 and verse 30 not to grieve the Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word grieve, by the way, it's a love word because you can only grieve someone who, who loves you and indeed the Spirit of God loves you. I hope you know that, and don't ever call him an idiot or a thing or a bird. He's a person. He's as much God as the Father or the Son. You don't relate to him as a force. I heard Glenn Beck interviewing some lady who just wrote a book on One Nation Under Deception, I think it was called, and, and he, she said, well, I don't view God in a personal way. I view him like a force. And, oh, yeah, that's good. That's a good way to see him. You know, the good force and the bad force. Well, he's a Mormon. What do you expect? I mean, the guy's lost. You should pray for him. While your next door neighbor's child who does wrong may bother you, only when your children do wrong do you typically grieve. For we only grieve if we deeply love 
the person who's doing wrong. If you can be grieved over those whom you love, all the more the Spirit of God is grieved out of His holiness and love for us when we do wrong. Remember what Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how about God who has a perfect love? And God has a perfect love for us. And so if we can be brokenhearted over the state of our children, how much more is the Spirit of God brokenhearted over us when we do wrong? Any known sin that is unconfessed and unrepented of prevents the Spirit from filling us to produce Christ's character in His ministry through us. Again, I'm underscoring their known sin. The solution to grieving the Spirit of God is to confess any known sin. And you know 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess is the word homo, homo, homo sapien, homosexual. Legeo to say, Jesus called the logos. And so when we confess, we're saying the same thing that God says about our sin. That's true confession. You call it for what it is. You don't excuse it. You don't say, well, if my wife or my husband or if my boss wasn't this way, I wouldn't have reacted that way. No, we own our sin. We confess what God says about that we've rebelled against him. We learned in section two of this discipleship course that this verse is not an invitation to salvation, but an exhortation to fellowship with God. That's what John says in the opening chapter. I'm writing these things that you made. I have fellowship with us, and our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son. He's not dealing with relationship. First John 1, 9 has nothing to do with salvation. Ripped out of context all the time. Has everything to do not with our union, but our communion with our intimacy with God. God wants us to know in our experience what is already true of us positionally. And unless we are experiencing God's forgiveness, then we are not walking in the light as commanded, and we are not filled with the Spirit. You're to walk in the light as He is in the light, and the blood of His Son, John says, cleanses you from all sin. Positionally, every Christian has forgiveness of all their sins, past, present, and future, right? Colossians 1, Colossians 2, Hebrews 10, Romans 3. Every sin, past, present, and future, legally, judicially, has been eternally forgiven. But there's a difference between judicial, legal forgiveness and what we might call family forgiveness. But practically, not every believer is experiencing that forgiveness. So first, there must be a sincere desire to be filled with the Spirit. You got to deal with your sin. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed is the person who seeks for righteousness, for he shall be filled. If you don't have a heart for righteousness, the Spirit of God is not going to fill you. And if you don't have a heart for righteousness, you're either A, not saved, or B, you're just out of fellowship with God. And so any sin that is cherished will prevent his filling. Second, you can know that you are filled with the Spirit if and only if you are not quenching his filling in your life. So we've been dealing with grieving the Spirit when you do those things that you shouldn't do, but neither are you to quench the Spirit in your life. For this reason, we are commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the Spirit. Or more literally, it can be translated in the ASV, that's the American Standard Version, that is the predecessor to the New American Standard that came out in 1901, it more literally just says, quench not the Spirit. And that's a little closer to the word order. The, the emphasis is put on the front of the verse. Quench not the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit when we do those things you should not do. We quench the Spirit when we do, those, do not do those things we ought to do. All right? So on the one hand, we grieve the Spirit or we quench the Spirit. When the Apostle Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the Spirit, he is dealing contextually, by the way, in the positive aspects of the Christian life. In fact, the, the Greek verb for, uh, for quench speaks of suppressing fire, which should not surprise us since the Holy Spirit is likened to a fire dwelling in each believer. And so the ISV renders it, do not put out the Spirit's fire. 
And that's not a bad rendering of the Greek New Testament. The Spirit wants to express Himself in our actions and our attitudes. And when we do not do those things that He wants us to do, when we do not allow the Spirit to work through us as He wants, then we quench Him. And so there's sometimes a sense of security. Believers taking the things they're not doing. Well, I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that anymore. But sometimes there's things in the positive realm. Oh, well, are you willing to share your faith? Are you willing to worship with the people of God in the Lord's Day? You know, on Christmas Sunday, a ton of people will not show up in churches across America because it's Christmas. It's still the Lord's Day. And God's people, that's why we're not having a Christmas Eve service this year. Because I don't want people to show up on Christmas Eve and think I've done my duty. Now I'm blowing off the day God commanded us to meet on the first day of the week. And if you got family and you just tell them, my practice on the Lord's day is to worship with his people. We'll be back in a few hours. If you want to make dinner and have it all ready for us, you're welcome to do that or you can come with us. Give them some options, all right? So the solution is to totally yield to God. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And he begins the verse with the word, therefore. Therefore, in light of the... Uh, 11 chapters that I have used to unfold the great mercies of God. In light of all this, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You must be willing to go anywhere He wants you to go, to say anything He wants you to say, to give whatever He wants you to give, and to do whatever he wants you to do as a living and holy sacrifice. That's what it means. I'm totally yours, Lord. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Assuming you're not grieving or quenching the Spirit, then you can by faith trust him to fill you according to his command, Ephesians 5, right? It's not an option. It's an imperative. Be filled with the Spirit. And his promise in 1 John in, in answering pleasing prayer. And pleasing prayer is prayer that's done in accordance to God's will. And so John says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Is it God's will for me to be filled with the Spirit? Yes, he just commanded it. In fact, the verse prior to it says, don't be ignorant, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Yes, this is God's will. And so if I ask anything according to his will, he hears me, okay? And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests which we have asked from him. So knowing that he does not fill a dirty or unyielded vessel, but knowing it is his will to fill you, then by faith you trust him to do what he says. So again, don't ask him to fill you with the Spirit if you're grieving and quenching him, because he's not going to do it. But if you're not grieving and not quenching him, then you can, by faith, be filled with the Spirit. So let's go to point B here, the conditions that sustain us to keep being filled with the Spirit. So negatively, we are commanded not to grieve or to quench the Spirit, while positively, we are commanded to walk by the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 16, but I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Socks, it can refer to the skin that covers your skeleton. It can refer to a worldly point of view. Or most often, I think 96 times in the New Testament, it refers to the sin nature within. The tense of the verb indicates a continuous moment-by-moment -moment dependence on the Holy Spirit to live His life in and through you. Think about it now. In the physical realm, walking by its very nature, is a succession of dependent acts where one foot is on the ground and the other is in the air. When one foot is lifted, it is done so in faith that the foot on the ground is able to support the full weight of your body, with each step trusting that the supporting foot will allow you to move forward, right? Well, in the same way, spiritually, we are not to live our Christian lives in our strength, but in the Spirit's power who is ready to fill us and to assist us. He won't live the Christian life for you, but He helps you. He's called right the helper, one of His great titles.
This attitude of dependence upon the Spirit is seen throughout the Bible in the many various commands that God gives His church to carry out. All the way through Scripture, this idea of living in dependence upon God is seen. For instance, in the realm of sin, God warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now, in addressing the subject of sin and temptation, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that a self-sufficient attitude precedes stumbling. If you're self-sufficient, ah, I won't, I can't, I'm good, I've gotten past that sin, what are you doing? You're tempting the devil to tempt you, Right? The Christian who rests in past victories or current resolve instead of walking in dependence on the Spirit is self-deluded and will fall. So God reminds us of others that have fallen. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. He gives these examples out of Israel's history. And twice over in verse 6 and then in verse 11, he reminds us these things are written as an example to us that we might not do the same thing that they did because remember, let him who thinks he stands, oh, we would never commit what those Jews did out there in the wilderness. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. And I've had to counsel pastors over the years who have fell morally. And one of the common traits is they thought it could never happen to them. God reminds us of these others who have fallen. And so will we if we are confident in our own strength. The next verse says, And no temptation has overtaken you, but what is such as is common to man? The strongest Christian is one who sees himself as weak and feeble. And he believes that he needs the help and the strength of the Holy Spirit. Even our ability to speak the gospel clearly with power comes only through the help of the Holy Spirit living his life through us. Paul has already underscored that in the context of dealing with the Spirit-filled life. He said in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You want to be effective in leading people to Christ? You must be spirit-filled. That's why Jesus said, don't even go out and witness to the first soul until the Spirit of God comes. We started the Christian life by faith, and so every day we are to walk by faith. Just as the Apostle Paul told the Colossian church, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. When you came to Christ for salvation, you came as in a bankrupt state, admitting your total inability to save yourself. And by faith, you place your full confidence on what Jesus did for you, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You're saved by grace through faith and not of yourself. You came broken, bankrupt, in need of someone other than yourself who could save you. In the same manner, remember, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In the same manner, to grow in Christ, you admit your total inability to live the Christian life by your own strength. And you choose by faith to walk by the Spirit, depending on him as a branch depends on a vine. And so that's the illustration Jesus gives. They leave the upper room. They're going across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you've been with me, I usually highlight that on top of the Mount of Olives. And between those two points, they go through this vineyard. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him, or the one who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. You never see a branch sweat and strain to produce fruit. No, it just rests in the vine and the sap flows through and the fruit is produced. In ourselves, we are powerless, fruitless, and as helpless as a branch cut off from the, a vine. We are unable to produce any fruit that pleases God. The fruit of the Spirit is, not the fruits of the Spirit are. Important distinction. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can't say, well, I got a lot of joy, I don't have much peace. I got a good bit of kindness, but I, but I lack self-control. 
No, the degree to which we have one is the degree to which we have the other. The responsibility to produce these qualities or even the fruit of seeing others one to Christ. So understand, fruit is used in two ways. It's used as the fruit of the Spirit, but it's also used of winning people to Jesus. I've commissioned you that you might go and bear fruit. He's talking contextually about winning people to Jesus. And winning others to Christ, it all belongs to the Holy Spirit who works in and through us as we depend upon Him to help us to live for Jesus. Walking in the Spirit means you are living a life of faith based on the truths that God reveals in His Word. Jesus promised, if you abide in me, this is a conditional promise. There are some that are unconditional. Here's a conditional promise. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So as we walk in the Spirit, we live according to God's Word, trusting in the reliability of God Himself made known through the Bible. Apart from general revelation, everything that we know about God is found here. Where? In the Holy Scripture. The conditions that sustain us for being filled with the Spirit is first to walk by the Spirit, depending on Him, but second, we're also sustained uh, sustained to walk by the truths found in God's infallible Word. And so Jesus is underscoring both, abiding in him like a branch abides in the vine, but also his word abiding in you. And so beyond the command to walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, you're also called to be one who sows to the Spirit in Galatians 6.8. So four commands, grieve not, quench not, walk by, sow too. That summarizes the Spirit-filled life. You ought to know those inside and out, backwards and forwards, and teach them to your children. If you're abiding in Christ, then His Word will be abiding in you because the Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum. But He always works in conjunction with the truth of His Word. For this reason, we are commanded in Galatians 6, 8, not to feed or sow to the flesh, meaning the sin nature, but to feed or sow to the Spirit. How? As we study God's Word. What did Paul say in Romans 12, 2? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Metamorpho. We get our English word metamorphosis from it. You know, the transformation a butterfly goes through. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So only as your mind is renewed through the counsel of Scripture will more and more areas of your life conform to the Spirit's plans. Again, this is why some people are just stagnant in their spiritual growth. Because they are not feeding on or being fed and taught God's holy, infallible Word. We will explore in the next section of this discipleship course how we practically, on a day-to-day basis, can be one who sows to the Spirit. So we're going to have to spend a whole section on that. The Christian and the Bible. And we're going to see how being filled with the Word of God and being filled with the Spirit go hand in glove. And sometimes people separate the two, the let go, let God, Keswick movement. There's truth to it, but there's error in it too. But then those who just say, well, you just fill your mind with the Bible and you're going to be a holy person. I had some seminary professors who were out of fellowship with God, but they could split a theological hair into 10 pieces. You didn't know they were out of fellowship with God in the truest sense until you watched them crash. You say, in seminary, it happens all the time. What number are we on? 24, right? Sadly, the spiritual life today is often described in terms of emotions. Sometimes people think that they are spirit-filled, that sometimes people think that if they are spirit-filled, that they will display a certain kind of emotion. And if that emotion is not present, they conclude that they are no longer filled with the Spirit. Christ was always filled with the Spirit, right? I mean, there was never a time when Jesus was not filled with the Spirit, yet He displayed a wide range of emotions, joy, anger, exhaustion, sorrow, to name just a few. While feelings have their place in our lives, God does not intend for our emotions to rule our lives, but He desires His Word to rule us, and when the Spirit rules our emotions, then we are Spirit-filled. For instance, we may not always feel like giving thanks. 
So while feelings have their place in our lives, God does not intend our emotions to rule our lives. 24, for instance, we may not always feel like giving thanks when difficult times come, but it's all a part of walking by faith. When the Spirit is filling us, we should not be looking for some emotional experience or something dramatic to happen to us. When we are saved, it was not because of some dramatic or emotional experience that was brought upon us. But because of an act of faith, we placed our full confidence in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Our emotions may have been involved, but ultimately we do not become a Christian by some emotional experience, but by an act of faith in Jesus. Even so, the Holy Spirit is given to us, not so that we can have some kind of an emotional experience but in order that we can live a holy life for the Lord and to be a fruitful witness for Him. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. Here's an important reminder by this diagram on the next page. You see here the relationship between fact, the engine, faith, the fuel car, feeling the caboose. The engine in this diagram represents the truth or facts of God's Word, and the fuel car represents our faith in what God has said in His Word, with the caboose representing our feelings. Obviously, it would be futile to try to pull the train by the caboose. In the same way, we are not to place our faith in the way we feel, but we are to place our faith in our unchanging, in our unchanging God who gives us his promises. So someone sent me, Rick did, an email about some lady who was just so distraught in New England. I thought, well, I've been studying for six hours. I'm going to go out in the yard and pick up a few sticks to stretch my legs, and I call this lady in Massachusetts who listens to search the scriptures, and she says, among other things, I don't feel like God answers my prayers. I said, it has nothing to do with feeling. Where does God tell us to put our faith in our feelings? He does not. But we've had all these movements who have tried to produce some kind of an emotional atmosphere. That's the average seeker church. They're trying to create an atmosphere to get you moved emotionally without giving you the truth that produces true, sound, biblical feelings. I'm not saying deny your feelings. God gives you emotions like joy, like a righteous anger, like being grieved over someone, said all kinds of emotions. But it's essential that you're filled with the Spirit, that your emotions are accordingly represented. I had a lady come into my office with a migraine headache. I said, you don't look good. She said, I feel awful, but I want to learn how to become a Christian. I shared the gospel. She received Christ, and she left with a migraine. (laughs) Was she saved? Yes. Did she feel better? Not an ounce. Not in the head realm, I guess. But her heart was changed. We do not depend on feelings or emotions to live a spirit-filled life. We can have various emotions as we walk with God, but to look or seek an emotional experience is a denial of the concept of faith. And the Bible clearly states, whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you are not grieving or quenching the spirit and are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for he shall be filled. Then by faith, you can expect God to fill you for he always responds to our obeying his will. Okay. That brings us to Roman numeral number six, the final point. Stay with me. We got nine minutes. How does God's How does one stay filled with the Spirit? As we noted earlier in this section, being filled with the Spirit is not a once and for all experience. We have learned that the Holy Spirit lives in us forever once we are saved. You never have to ask Him to come into your life again once you have had the second birth. That was an Old Testament problem, right? We studied that earlier in this handout from Psalm 51. Lord, don't take your Spirit from me, right? That's an Old Testament prayer. However, it is important that He is not only indwelling us, but filling us. So while we are indwelt or baptized by the Spirit just once at the moment of conversion, there are many fillings of the Spirit is made clear in Ephesians 5.18. We noted earlier that the tense in the Greek language in which the command is given, be filled with the Spirit, or you could say, be you being filled with the Spirit, was originally written, when it was originally written, it, it, it speaks of an ongoing process. The command means to be continually controlled or in continually empowered with the Spirit 
as a lifestyle. And that's what we're talking about when we are filled with the Spirit. It's like those people in Nazareth who wanted to throw Jesus over a cliff. The text says they were filled with rage. Same word, plarao. They were controlled. Or in the upper room, Jesus said, your hearts are filled, plarao. It's con- you're, they're controlled by sorrow. So when you're filled with the Spirit, you're controlled, you're under His direction. So A, trust God to continue to fill you with the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is a moment-by-moment dependence on God. Many times, when we are walking filled with the Spirit, we are confronted with situations that require an immediate filling to carry out God's will. Earlier in this section, we studied how the disciples who were walking filled with the Spirit, it just described them as Spirit-filled men and women, They come under great persecution such that they come together for prayer, for a prayer meeting, asking for boldness while being opposed. So they get together, they're being persecuted, let's go to God in prayer. And this same group was again filled with the Spirit. He just said they were filled with the Spirit. Well, they're filled again for a special need. And so the text says, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. We learn from that passage that the apostles and others did not need to be filled with the Spirit again because of some sin, but because they needed the control and the power of the Holy Spirit in a new area. And that's what often happens as you walk with God. God presents you with a situation or a new truth that, I never saw that before. Lord Jesus, help me with that truth. Help me to carry out that truth in the power of your spirit. They needed to be filled anew in order to know boldness in witnessing in light of being threatened and prohibited to speak about Jesus. Sometimes in a moment of need or sometimes when God simply reveals a new area of his will that he wants you to obey, just continue to yield that need under his care that you might keep on being filled. That a new need or a new area for godly living is revealed does not at all mean that you were resisting the Spirit or in disobedience to God. The Christian life is a growing experience, and so we are not only saved by grace, but we are commanded to grow in grace, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is all part of a moment-by-moment spirit-filled walk with God. So that's one side of it. You're in a situation, Joe Blow comes up to you, the conversation, obviously, in the providences of God as he opens his heart, turns to spiritual things. You say, Lord, help me. Help, Help me to help this guy because the problem he is revealing to me is really a problem that he's lost. So help me to bridge into the gospel. So whatever it might be, or you're just reading the scripture, oh, that no unwholesome word proceeds from your mouth, but only such a word for edification. And God says, you know, sometimes you're sarcastic. And no, 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 no. Well, I never really thought about that before. It's not that you were in rebellion. God's just showing you a new area of your life that he wants to bring under the Spirit's control. B, when it is necessary, trust God to fill you with the Spirit again. As Christians, we cease to be under the control and power of the Spirit when we sin through a definite act of disobedience, because we cannot run our lives while at the same time be under the control of the Spirit. They both can't happen at once. When this happens, then one must stop grieving the Spirit through confession of the sin in his life, and that that has broken the Spirit's control. And so, again, we saw the solution to grieving the Spirit is simply to confess any known willful sin against God and by faith claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9. Sometimes people say, well, I, I, I asked God to forgive me. I said, well, were you repentant? Yes. You own your sin? Yes. But I don't feel forgiven. It has nothing to do with feelings. You take God at His word. And if you know Jesus and you already have an eternal bank account of forgiveness, you can draw on it, not in a presumption way, these things I'm writing to you, so that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But no, by faith, you take God at his word. And so sometimes there's what we call false guilt. And then there's real guilt. Real guilt is, is there because it's incomplete repentance. We really haven't dealt with it. 
There are times when we have wronged a brother or a sister. We must go and ask for forgiveness and, if necessary, to make restitution. So you and your wife have an argument, you head off to work, you don't make it right, you're out of fellowship with God until you make it right. Can he minister through you? He might minister in spite of you, but can he minister through you as he wants to? Absolutely not. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. We are to go to our brother, be it a family member or a church member or a friend or an associate, and make things right as soon as possible. Jesus clearly taught that our hearts are not right with God if we are not right with each other. And so we cannot expect the Spirit to fill us if we are unrepentant about causing another person legitimate offense. The Apostle Paul reminds us as well in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, knowing that it's not always possible, even though we have humbly and even prayerfully attempted. So sometimes you can do everything and the person still won't forgive you. But you've done what God's called you to do on your side. We have learned in this discipleship lesson that we cannot grieve the Spirit of God and expect Him to fill us with Himself any more than we can quench the Spirit of God and expect Him to fill us. So if God makes you aware of some area whereby you are quenching him through an unwillingness to obey the positive commands of Scripture, you know we have people who still haven't come back from COVID? Someone told me recently a new member's lunch, well, you know, the COVID thing got kind of convenient. And we went for like months after. It was just easy to sit at home and watch you on TV. But it wasn't a health issue. Look, I get it if someone's got a health issue, but if someone doesn't have a health issue, they are living in sin. They are forsaking their assembling together, and they cannot expect the living God to fill them and empower them and minister through them. So if God makes you aware of an area of your life where you're quenching Him, Romans 12, 1, yield that area of our life to God. I urge you, brethren, again, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. Assuming you have met these conditions, then by faith, you can ask the Spirit to once again take control of your life according to His command in Ephesians 5 to be filled in His promise in 1 John 5 that whenever you pray according to His, His, His will, He hears and He answers. So if you've met the conditions and you ask the Spirit of God to fill you, will He fill you? Yes. And so if you lead maybe your son or daughter and you're teaching them to walk in the Spirit and there's some sin and they've confessed it and you say, well, okay, now ask the Spirit of God to fill you, to take control of your life again because you can't change this area on your own. Are you filled with the Spirit? Well, I don't know, Daddy. I don't feel any different. Is he filled with the Spirit? No. Did you receive Christ as your Savior? Well, I asked them. Were you saved? I hope so. I'm not sure. I don't know. Are they saved? No. Why? Because they did not take God at his word. Without faith, it's impossible to please them. Oh, there's some groups. Oh, you got to speak in tongues. Oh, you got to get all emotional and get all fuzzy and all this nonsense. That's the opposite of faith. By being filled with the Spirit through each hour of the day, you will experience an abundant, joyful, and fruitful life to the glory of God. And that's really the bottom line. God, I want to be filled with the Spirit so I can be a great evangelist. God says, I'm not interested. Well, God, I want to be filled with the Spirit so I can be a great Bible teacher. God says, I'm not interested. God, I want to be filled with the Spirit so I can be a better husband and father. God said, I'm not interested. But God, I want to be filled with the Spirit so that by life or by breath, I might glorify the Lord Jesus. And God says, I'm interested. Because that's why I sent him, to because he has come to glorify me. Now, Holy Father, we thank you for the time we have. Teach us. As the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. We ask you, teach us to walk in the Spirit. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.